WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. This week's guest is the creator of the new Dark Horse series, the Great British Bump Off, John Allison. Welcome, John. Hi, really nice to be here. To be here again, in fact. Yes, again, again. It's been uh, it's been a while. But uh, opening question, John, are you now or have you ever been a baker? I can bake. Do you know, I was trying to think, have I ever made a cake? I haven't. I've made pies. I'm a reasonable cook. You know, I'm I'm patient and I can follow instructions, which I think gets you sort of two thirds of the way there. Imagination and flair. That's what I'm missing. But uh, I'll get there. Practice. Presentation is certainly an important part of the uh, of the recipe of any recipe. <laughs> when it comes to baking, following instructions is the most important part, says the guy whose wife went to culinary school and was for many years a professional baker. This this comes straight from from her. Now, yeah, now Matt, I'm... have you ever baked for Amber? <laughs> oh, hell no. <laughs> fear of judgment or i i'm not good in the kitchen to begin with you put me in front of a grill i'm okay i can i can grill a good steak i can grill a good burger grill some chicken absolutely i can put together a nice salad i'm good for barbecues that's that's pretty much as far as i can go i burn things <laughs> I believe we call that intentional charring now. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, just get a high color on something, you know, a real, a real, a real, a real nice uh, char. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we asked that question, of course, because you are here to talk about the Great British Bump Off, which is your new Dark Horse series with your old Giant Days partner, Max Saren. Uh, and it goes a little something like this, Matt, if you will. When she enters her country's most beloved baking competition, Shauna Wickle's goal is to delight the judges, charm the nation, and make a few friends along the way. But when a fellow contestant is poisoned, it falls to her to apprehend the culprit while avoiding premature elimination from the UK bakery tent and being the poisoner's next victim. So, John, what is what is the origin of this comic? When did you first uh, conceive of, 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 you know, the, the baking competition murder mystery? Well, I've watched the original, the Mothership Baking Show, the Great British Bake Off, or I think it's just called the Great British Baking Show in the US. And I would draw along with it, you know, I draw the 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 mishaps and I would draw my favorite character, Des Fishman, as if he was on Bake Off, kind of insert him into the the scenarios. He'd be shaking hands with the judges, he'd just be getting involved. And these were very crude drawings, but I showed them to my editor at Dark Horse, Daniel Chaben, and he was immediately, he wanted to see this for real. And I said, well, what you're seeing here is too crude for public consumption. Daniel, you're an experienced editor. You're the editor of Black Hammer. You should know that these drawings are not fit for anybody. And he said, that's right, John, but I'm that enthusiastic. But I'm going to let you just go away and think about this for two years, which is what I did. And the, it went through various permutations, not all of which would have ended up at Dark Horse. Some of them were kind of Charlotte Grote kind of comics that could have worked in other areas of my little comics kingdom. But in the end, it, it circled back and uh, it seemed only fair that it should end up with the person who'd really kind of shown the earliest enthusiasm for my desire to draw a, a ludicrous cake. 
And so that that's kind of how it all started off, really. It was just it was just goofing around and then goofing around that got out of hand because it was quite hard to work out. Now, you're you're working with Max again on on this one. How close are you two to sharing a, a brain at this point? Well, well, that is an interesting question, because obviously we don't see each other very often because Max lives in Finland sure. and I live in the UK, but we do get on very well. And we are kind of lucky to have found each other that we met through Max was on the degree course taught by a friend of mine. He was kind of the head of the course. And when Lisa Trayman left Giant Days, I said to Dan, my friend, not Dan Grote, but Dan Berry, I said, have you got anyone on your course who thinks any good, you know, any hip young gunslingers that I can, you know, co-opt is probably a nice way of putting it. And Dan said, yeah, Max, Max Sarin's very good. And Max is amazing to work out. And yeah, we do kind of, I know what to write for Max at this point that will work. And I've learned a lot as an artist from working with Max. So it's a nice two-way street, I think. Had you at the, at this point with, with Bump Off, you know, had you thought about another artist for this series or drawing it yourself? Or was this a matter of Max is free, let's go? I always think in terms of, I might draw it myself um, mm -hmm. just because... Kind of, I, I always think of myself as the primary artist for my work. Max is better than me, but not only is Max better than me, you know, Bill Sinkovich is better than me, but I don't know if Bill Sinkovich would draw the you know a comic that was like one of my comics, you know. I'm not sure it would be a good mind meld, so to speak. I'd love to see Bill Sinkovich draw one of my comics, but I'd have to spend a lot of time thinking about how I would do that. Whereas with Max, I kind of like, we've worked together. I know what will work and we we do have a similar approach. So yeah, it, it, it's kind of like if if I'm if I don't want to do it or I don't have time to do it, or simply I think it could be better served by a better artist, then I will go to Max first and ask. You know, there's and there's obviously a lot of of trust between you two as a result of of you know that relationship and and how often you've worked together. Do you find that you script differently or more loosely for Max versus? you know, on those occasions where you do work with another artist? Well, weirdly, actually, I think it's got tighter working with Max because we do have a similar approach. And because I've kind of grown as an artist through working with Max, I've kind of learned a lot. So for the Great British Bump Off, I actually kind of did full, well, fulls, perhaps a strong word, but breakdowns for every page. You know, every page is broken down to panels. There's a kind of badly drawn version, not that different from my original Bake Off drawing drawings that I did that Daniel saw for each panel and then I hand it to Max and say along with a typed out script so that the words are actually legible and say this is anything you want to do to change this just please do change it this is not a blueprint for success this is just my you know primitive version of it so it's kind of it is kind of like a hand in glove process certainly on this series anyway we've, we've worked this way a little bit on a few issues of Giant Days and the Steeple special we did together but yeah it's um I say I it's my kind of really loose breakdowns, you know, suggested angles, expressions, poses, and things like that. And then Max takes that and uh, makes it makes it decent, makes it fit for the public consumption. Is there is there something Max did uh, in drawing this series this time around that uh, surprised you? Oh well, Max, because my character designs for it. I kind of had because I had to I drew 88 pages of this comic very 
very crudely. So I kind of had what you describe as almost iconographic uh, versions of the characters, you know, like Sunil kind of had a had a look, but I just would just draw his glasses as a kind of rectangle around two dots for eyes every time and a kind of neat pyramid of hair. So as the characters emerged from you know Max's interpretation of these very, very primitive versions I loved meeting them you know it's like oh yeah that is what that character is and that is what that character is and I had one or two little pointers for what some of the questions would be like I said Jill would be like remember Ruth Gordon from Harold and Maud the kind of 70s actress I was like I think I think Ruth Gordon's really cool there's an episode of Columbo where she's kind of a, a murder writer and she has some great outfits and she has a really great look you know she's a lot hipper than she is in Harold and Maud even though she's probably about 80 and I thought Let's get a bit of that Ruth Gordon energy into it. But again, it won't come out exactly the same. And the um, the Fanny Craddock character, because I, I don't know if you know, but Fanny Craddock is a real British TV chef who, who died in the early 90s. But she's she's one of the judges in Great British Bump Off, you know, because the TV show has, you know, a, a, usually a sort of matriarch kind of judge. And then mm-hmm. Paul Hollywood, the, the kind of bluff, the bluff baker. And so I needed a, a matriarch. I thought, well, who's the maddest British TV chef there ever was? Kind of the the archetype, but also a, a road that had to end in uh, in the 1970s. Could go no further. It was Fanny Craddock. And Max really draws a good Fanny Craddock. And I urge your listeners to just Google her because she's she's a one-off. There was never anybody like this woman before or after. And just investigate her life, actually, because she's she's properly, properly wild. But Max is Fanny. Max is Fanny Craddock is incredible. Total side. I love that episode of Columbo. I, I love most episodes of Columbo, but that I have a very distinct <laughs> recollection of that one. That's a real good one. Oh, it is. It's a great one, isn't it? Yeah, that's 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 a really special one. I love Columbo anyway. I love the kind of resurgence of interest in it recently with this kind of Ryan Johnson kind of kind of angle on things. I'm really looking forward to seeing his uh, his new show. It's very good. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I was going to say between the two of us, that's four thumbs up on. This. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not on here yet. It's 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 on Hulu in America, but I think it's it's coming over here on a different network. So we've we've got to wait for it. Each of the bakers have a big initial on their apron, which I thought was a really nice touch because with introducing all of these characters it, right out of the gate, this gives a little bit of reference to remember who each of them are at least name wise was that in the script or was that something max sort of threw in there well i part of the reason this took two years for me to work out was because there were so many characters i had to work out a way that you could do a murder mystery at a baking competition i it couldn't really happen halfway through the series when you've only got four issues you know like the, the nature of an indie series now is it tends to be short so I was always thinking about length and how you would do it. Uh, and I thought you have to start in the first episode. But then I thought that is so many characters. We've got 12 contestants. We've got the host. We've got the judges and and kind of some production team as well. There was no way I could I could make it work at first. And eventually I thought, well, how will you do it? And I thought we'll make the characters all very visually distinct. You know, There can be no cookie cutter character. They all have to be an archetype which kind of helped the story. But then when I was doing the breakdown to Max so that Max could see who the character was easily, I just wrote the initials on the apron on, on each character so it was clear who it was, even if it, they were in the background of the panel. And then I thought, well, I'll just use that. 
that it helped me it'll help max it'll help readers as well so it was just a it was a, a lucky accident really now you you were already watching uh you know the the uh great british bake-off it was the insp- inspiration for the series obviously but like did you find yourself watching more of it or watching you know similar shows when you got really into sort of scripting this comic I'd watched every episode since it started. And so I just watched one episode to make sure I kind of got the ticks and the tropes and the um and the features, obviously, which I kind of renamed everything, but everything was re- you know, that's the that's the that's the nature of kind of pastiche, you know, you kind of want to pay an homage to each thing without simply recreating it. So I I kind of I had it all, it's because it's formulaic, I had it in my head, you know, that I've how many episodes are there a season? I don't know, 12. And how many years has it been on? 450. So, you know, you know, I I had so much bake-off knowledge. It was, it was you know how you build up a fountain of useless knowledge about something you've paid far too much attention to over a long period of time. You realize you're an expert, and you're like, I'm I could be an expert on anything. I could be an expert on like, you know, the names of clouds or recognizing every tree, but no, it's just baking competition television. That that's what I can do. One baking show is enough for me, though. I I couldn't go deeper into like Cake Boss and things like that. And, uh, you know, I've seen I've seen all episodes where my friends, kids will get obsessed with these shows. And I'll watch them like this is more fondant content than I need. More fondant content than anyone needs, really. But So this will be a question for the group. Uh, Asimov Fangirl asks, what are some of your favorite cooking or food related shows uh, or comics, uh, John. I feel like you've you've kind of already started to answer this question. But if there's you know anything in other media outside of television you wanted to pitch in with, oh well, I mean I I would have to pay in terms of food TV shows. I've got to go right to the source and the Barefoot Contessa. I love the Barefoot Contessa, a TV show that looks like it's been made for about eight bucks. Uh, you know, it's got, there's no gloss on that show at all. It rides entirely on Ina Garten's personality. And I love the fact that she worked in the Clinton administration and that Jeffrey, her husband, who just bumbles around looking slightly helpless. It's like, they're, they're both like super intellectuals. They're so kind of daffy on that show. And it's, and yet, you know, they're proper brains trust people. I love it. it there's something about it. Also, it's quite soothing. It really soothes me which I think is kind of the thing about cookery TV. No, I do like it. I like I like all the greats like Nigella and um, the kind of the British equivalent of Ina Garten is Delia Smith, who kind of introduced like the British people to like, you know, like bell peppers. You know, no one had ever seen a green pepper in the UK before um, Delia Smith uh, showed one on TV and people were like, what's this? This is blowing <laughs> my mind. And I remember seeing the episode uh, when I was uh, looking for something else and, she goes like, ask your greengrocer. They'll 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 tell you what to do with this. And you're like, just imagine a world kind of 40, 45 years ago where people didn't know what a pepper was. But you know, British food culture was quite uh, arid until the until the nineties, really. And so there was a lot of educating to do by people like that. And it's yeah. So like, I, I like that. The, yeah, the, the towering figures of food TV. No deep cuts, really. Just the kind of the, the giants. They're giants for a reason. Just, just wait another 45 years when y'all have gotten really into uh, the spice aspect of peppers and investigating the capsicum count and Scoville units. and Oh, Scoville units. Yeah. Oh, no, I've 
I've been to the Eden Project and and they have, which is like the kind of the biodomes in Cornwall in the UK. And they have a, a whole area just dedicated to peppers. And they tell you what the scovilles are of everything. They've got them all growing in like the tropical environment, you know. Yeah. Also, I like Guy Fieri and he's always talking about, you know, getting some heat in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, it's on his shirt, isn't it? Just the flames of yeah. peppery Scoville heat. <laughs> that's that's the Guy Fieri style. I like to think he's got a Homer Simpson closet of those shirts. Oh, I hope so. I love Guy Fieri. I like that he's meant to be a good guy as well. You know, like he could so easily not be a good person. But when you hear about him, he's like, no, Guy Fieri's a nice fellow. You're like, oh, there, there's good in the world. You know, that's good stuff. <laughs> Matt, how about you? Uh, I enjoy if uh, Alton Brown, uh, Good Eats, which <laughs> is about as much the science of food as the the cooking. Sh- it's not really a cooking show. It's more about the history and science of food. I see reruns. I don't know if there's new episodes anymore, but it's one of those things that I used to watch when it was was new episodes when there were, when there were new episodes and I, I now see every now and then uh, also the original Japanese Iron Chef American mm. version is fine but you gotta go with the original subtitled Iron Chef because that that's where it is it, it bringing over. You know, America has made a cottage industry of stealing shows from other countries, but the the original is always the best. I like the sentence. Where where would one go to see the original Japanese episodes of Anchef? Because this this is like my catnip. This is very exciting. I I don't know where they are now. I used to watch them with uh, a an ex of mine who was a an. I have a habit of dating people who are good with cooking and she knew the place to go. So we would watch them and they, they were subtitled and boy, I, I wish I still did have the access to those original iron chefs. Oh no, that's an exciting deep cut. Yeah. yeah I was gonna say my best guess was like food network 20 years ago. <laughs> I mean, that's where <laughs> th- they were accessible there. And I know I, I'm fairly certain they might have been recorded on a VHS tape, <laughs> which does indicate just how long ago that was. And mailed overseas. Because <laughs> they, they would air them late at night. So it was like she would record them and then watch them at, you know, a human hour. And so I would sit there and watch them. I was like, this is brilliant. It was like that that panning moment as the chairman takes the bite out of the pepper and then just smiles <laughs> the, the I, I also like i like it as as food network after dark too right you know so you get like 12 hours or so of of you know barefoot contessa soothing cooking television and then all of a sudden at 10 o'clock people are yelling in in japanese <laughs> <laughs> revealing the secret ingredient and oh that the, the the pageantry of Iron Chef was part of of the charm. Big part of the charm. Present, presentation again. There we go. Yeah. Coming back into play. I was never a big food show person. I do remember watching those original Japanese Iron Chefs with you. 
back in the day when you were watching them. Um, you know, my wife had had like Rachel Ray had a Rachel Ray phase. She had a Cake Boss phase. And that was just fascinating, you know, just heavily New Jersey accents and and baking. But, you know, still, again, more fondant than anyone needs in their mouth. Um, you know, I, I would say the closest thing now, and this doesn't count as a cooking show, but probably just hot ones, just watching celebrities eat, you know, a bite of a spicy chicken wing and then sweating while they answer a question. <laughs> Which which was more difficult overall in crafting this series, you know, engrossing yourself in sort of the language and the tropes of competitive baking or crafting the mystery to be solved? Oh, crafting the mystery to be solved, because I think if you're doing if you work a genre, a genre exercise with a genre exercise, I just write myself a big, long list of all the things that I've got to get in there, you know, and then I just tick them off. And as long as you've got them in. People are generally pretty happy that you satisfied the uh, you satisfied the kind of the pageant of of what each thing is. You know, if I write an X Men comic, if I write a Wolverine comic, it's got to have he's the best at what he does, and and you know, got to go and lick his wounds. He's got to slice some people up, and it's a bit like that. You know, I needed a Ban Marie. I needed all the the, the slightly out there cooking techniques that appear on cooking shows. But writing the mystery, I mean, that was the hard part because. Again, a lot of characters. It took me a long time to wrangle it. You know, you've got to wrangle all those characters. And I had to go kind of Agatha Christie style. I had to think back to stories I'd done kind of 10 years earlier where I'd really gone deep into how like a Poirot works or a Miss Marple works and just utilize the machinery of that kind of storytelling. And, and, and it does work. You know, like there's a reason there are so many Agatha Christie books and you can read them all. It's because the it just gels together motive and opportunity across quite quite a matrix you know you can build a really good matrix of of what might happen so really that was it but it was a lot of wrangling it's just length you know comic books aren't long i still like a 22 page issue rather than the kind of modern 20 which gives you an extra two pages to get in and out of an issue before you have to get to the meat of it but still i had 88 pages and this story had a shrunk and grown over over the two years at one point it was down to 64 as kind of like two specials or like an annual kind of length thing then it kind of got longer and it kind of when it was 88 it was like well I can just about get everything in here with all the characters and do the Agatha Christie grid and get out without people saying you've not done it all you know you've 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 shortchanged us somewhere so yeah it's the it was the mystery aspect um Shauna Wickle is an existing character, uh, obviously from uh, you know Scary Go Round and Bad Machinery, where she was one of of the teen sleuths alongside mm -hmm. my uh, fictional British uh, sibling Charlotte Grote. Uh, what <laughs> what made her the uh, ideal protagonist from your oeuvre for this story? Well, I, what I will say about the story is that a lot of characters auditioned for this story, it, as it went through various permutations. It was a Charlotte story. And Charlotte and Claire from um, also from Bad Machinery and and Wicked Things and Solver were, were going to do it together, but Charlotte was not the right character for it. And when I tried to put her into that situation, it just didn't it didn't work. She wasn't enough of a she wasn't enough of kind of an every person to carry it. You know her ticks and traits and expectations all kind of impinged on a very tight story structure. It's like 
I haven't got time for her to do her her song and dance and dog and pony show because I've got to fit a lot in here. Whereas Shauna's a bit more of a, she is the, like she in Bad Machinery, she was like the every, every girl character, you know, she was the one with the, the kind of most down to earth problems, I think. And so she fitted into it so much better. As soon as I put her in the story, things that hadn't worked or had seemed laborious worked. And she worked better with the characters that I'd written to be the mystery suspects as well. All of a sudden, when she interfaced with them, it was easier. They didn't look at her as trouble in quite the same way as they looked at Charlotte as trouble. So, yeah, she just made sense. How much baking had been in her uh, continuity to this point? In now, I'm going to say none i don't think she'd ever baked i'm i'm thinking about because she appears in all 10 bad machinery books and i don't know that she ever picked up a spatula but she is very capable and slightly precocious and i think she's the sort of person where because you do get people in bake off where they're like i've been baking for you know six months but i just really threw myself into it and then I entered the competition kind of as something to work towards. And then they clearly got to the auditions and they were good enough. You know, they'd they'd read the books, they'd worked it out, they'd followed instructions and they knew what to do. And I think she, I thought Sean's that kind of character. You know, she'll have she'll just have decided, you know, she's gone to college and she's just thought, yeah, why not? This is going to be my thing for, for a few months. I'll try out baking, see how well I do. Try entering Bake Off, or maybe, you know, her friends have egged her on to do it. And she's like, yeah, I can do it. I can do it. Or they said, you wouldn't dare. And she said, like, yeah, I would dare. So I, I think I've not, ex- I didn't have room to explore why she would have entered. I still have. I could if I wanted to. So I, I like to think she's the sort of person, yeah, she, no one can tell her what to do, really. And I think that's it. You know, if someone said she couldn't, she'd try. And that's why she's the first person in her family to use a Bon Marie. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Exactly. She's a, yeah. Yeah. I, I, was very, I was very proud of that line because I think, you know, I don't think I'd be the first person in my family to use a Bon Marie, but I'm sure you could bump into someone on the street and say, have you ever melted chocolate in a, in a little bowl over some warm water? And they'd be like, I know, but I want to. This is unknown <laughs> to me. I don't know why I do it, but I want to do it. So surprising no one who has listened to an episode of this podcast. Uh, I'm officially in love with Primrose, the cat host. Yes. Uh, which was just is delightful. Uh, I initially was like, wait, this can't be a cat because she seemed to be waiting so patiently inside for her entrance i actually was about to give away her entrance and i don't want to for those who haven't read the book yet. yeah that's a big that's a big so big like, reveal yeah yes. big reveal. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh but then her attitude towards the contestants was just so perfectly cat-like it's like yeah yeah i can see this what's the origin of primrose i need to know well <laughs> bake-off has two human kind of hosts and I'd already got so many characters in there. I thought it's just adding more of the same. It was like, you know, it's like, let's eat some, we'll have potatoes for dinner and we'll have potato chips and, you know, and then we'll have some potatoes for dessert. It was like, no, what, how can I do this different? I thought, what's the greatest trope of manga? It's the cat who just comes out and goes like, Hey, professor, like that. Hey, professor, I don't think you should do that. 
that sort of thing. Exactly. Waggy finger, the waggy finger cat. And I thought, what if the waggy finger cat couldn't talk, but just behaved like the waggy finger cat? So that's that's the origin of Primrose. Now, Primrose's character, again, why did Max have to draw this comic? Because I couldn't have drawn as a cat that was a 50th as good as Max has drawn Primrose. Max has really made that character one of the stars of the series. Whereas if I'd drawn it, it would have just been a classic Hey Professor cat and not much better than that. It's, you know, initially I was like, oh, okay. So the host is talking to the cat as if the cat is saying things, but then other characters start interacting with the cat as if they understand <laughs> the cat. And it's just like, this is delightful. Yeah, it's good. I think if, if there was a follow-up to Bump Up, I think I, I sort of saw it like Columbo where nobody would really come back if I did a follow-up, but I think maybe Primrose would have to come back because otherwise I'd be, you know, assassinated. <laughs> You've created a new fan favourite. <laughs> I think, uh, hopefully, fingers crossed, we've got a month to find out. I, I'm quietly confident. <laughs> uh, we believe in you. Now, uh, how how does it feel to have written the funniest pecker wordplay joke since austin powers the spy who shagged me which one's that i wrote this comic nearly a month a year ago so i can't remember anymore oh uh, keep uh, your pecker up yes, yes that's keep your one. pecker up well this was one where i look i'd just written it in the script and it might even have preceded like the kind of written script because i always have pages of notes and little faces because when i'm working out you know i try to work out bon mo's before i actually start working on structure because I just it makes me feel like I've actually got something in the bag already and I thought is keep wait is keep your pecker up rude is it is it is it penis related or is it just beak related and I looked it up and I was like no it's beak related it's fine it's t for teen let's 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 get the, all the peckers we want in there ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes for the children yes that's excellent <laughs> I, I like the idea of comics as kind of slightly transgressive. I think that's something that's kind of lost from art now is that it's a lot of kids' literature has become quite hand-holdy in a way that it wasn't certainly when any of us, I think, probably were kids. And in a way, yes, it's good to like not make kids into tiny bigots. But also at the same time, the things I loved about comics, and I think the reason that manga maybe is so popular is because it's transgressive, you know, it's always slightly worse and slightly not, you look at it and you go, this probably isn't what a, if you're reading like a book for 12 year olds when you're 10, it's like, this is actually maybe a bit off, you know, you're like, well, some of this stuff I don't understand, maybe what's going on here? This is a term I'm not really meant to use. And I think that's that's kind of the, the gift of, uh, the gift of manga is it's slightly transgressive. So I like to sneak tiny transgressions into things, but nothing nothing too unpleasant. This isn't the only thing that you've got going on. Uh, you've got or are about to launch a new comic on your Patreon called Kit and the Wolf, uh, in which Kitty Pride and Wolverine of the X-Men uh, fight the Reavers at the concert of a Bruce Springsteen soundalike from a Transformers comic in the 1980s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a surefire winner, uh, an unlicensed X-Men comic about a, an, a a character from a one issue of Transformers in the eighties. Yeah, it's what it's what the audience wants. I mean, it's it's what I didn't know I needed. I'll I'll say that much. <laughs> having read it, um, you know, was it was this something that kind of came in response to the success of the of the the Giant Days Batman uh, 
unauthorized comic that you did? It was, it was more, I, I, it's very difficult to actually summon the origins of this. Like when I was a kid, I made superhero comics, like bad superhero comics. I think, you know, any kid who wants to make comics does. You sit down when you're 13 and you try and make an X-Men comic. You don't know how to write an X-Men comic. You can't draw any of the characters except the ones you've really mastered, you know. So like there's there's always going to be a few weaklings. You don't really understand how to create conflict. You don't know how to do anything. And, and I burned all my comics I made as a kid on a bonfire when I was 15, which is one of the acts I most regret. So there's no record anymore of all the X-Men comics I made and the kind of Death's Head comics and things like that. These don't exist. And I wanted to try and make, I thought, I'll sit down. I've worked so hard over the last few years and the pandemic and everything else. I think I'm going to sit down, I'm going to do something that's just for me. What am I going to do? I'll write one issue of an X-Men comic the way I think it should be done now, but I'll do it as if it was the X-Men when I, that I was reading when I was a kid, kind of like from the ashes and trade paperbacks like that. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, that's kind of what it is. It's, it's a, it is like one of my comics, but it's absolutely, well, tell me what you think. Not many people have seen it. It's absolutely straight though. I don't, I'm not messing about. It is Wolverine. I've, I've written him exactly as I think he is. I don't, I don't, I'm not taking the piss out of people. This, you know, it is, it is an X-Men comic. No, it absolutely plays straight. And I love, again, without, this isn't the spoiler because we're for only a few pages into the issue that Logan's initially like, yeah, no, not into this. But I cannot. Rick Springsteen. Rick, Rick Springsteen. Rick Springsteen, yeah. And and that's like wait he, he listens to the music and he's like yeah this is actually a thing I I could get behind it's like yeah because people who just don't listen to the lyrics are born in the USA yeah that that's not Logan's shtick <laughs> looking at you Ronald Reagan <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah no Logan Logan is absolutely spot on as is Kitty at that point yeah she's Kitty at that point I I yes. I, I'm, yes, I can call her yeah. Kitty she's not yes Kitty. yeah um, yeah that's it no no I was. That was it. I, I wanted to kind of to get exactly where because I, I loved those Chris Claremont comics when I was growing up. You know, they're absolutely my A comic when I was kind of 10, 11. You know, I was I mean, again, I was talking about transgressive comics. Like I was reading Inferno, the Inferno issues of X-Men when I guess I was 11, 10 or 11 because it's 1987. Mm-hmm. Those comics come out. Those are kind of like they're quite racy, I think. And but you know they they're not they haven't warped my mind but at the same time I thought again like there was such an excitement about getting every issue like those comics with the brood in and stuff they were scary you know they 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 felt really there was a, there was a real sense of danger about them and I thought what thought how can I draw in these comics kind of what a comic felt like to me then how exciting it was to me and I kind of tried to channel that through Kitty being excited about going to see. Brick Springsteen, because who wouldn't be excited about going to see Brick Springsteen? You know, he's the uh, he's the absolute number one, well, number two headband wearing uh, New Jersey musician operating in the mid eighties. <laughs> I, I I love the name too because it sounds like when the Flintstones want to reference modern celebrities and they just shove rock into the name. Uh, <laughs> yes. You know, <laughs> it's, or it's just Rock Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah, it's it's really funny. But again, I, I think I wrote this at the start of the issue in the little intro. 
it's um there's a, there are also marvel comics that reference bruce springsteen from a similar era there's a there's an issue of i think it's the avengers or captain america where you know steve rogers is sitting around with his kind of like his pals and his it's kind of like a bachelor pad that's the only way i can describe it i've not been able to find the issue a second time so but he's they're like hey you know this this bruce springsteen's really got something to say and i was like wait brick springsteen and bruce springsteen they both exist in the marvel universe so these guys' lives must constantly interact with them. They're on like festival bills together and things like that, you know. <laughs> when they meet, what happens? It's a very Marvel Universe sort of thing to happen because there's lots of different ways Brick Springsteen could have accidentally entered the Marvel Universe from Earth 615 or wherever he comes yeah. from. <laughs> it was an incursion event and they both ended up fighting, <laughs> fighting for stage time at the uh, Stone Pony, yes. <laughs> Oh boy. But uh, yeah, so Brick has his own page on the Transformers Wiki, which uh, I pulled a selection from. And I just want to read this out for the listeners to, to truly appreciate what's going on here. Brick Springstern and the 10th Avenue Band are a popular human musical group. Brick is known worldwide for his hit songs Born in America and Dancing in the Night. Other perennial concert favorites include Born to Ride and Margarita. Uh, <laughs> Whether the East Street freeze-out is included in his repertoire is not known. The band's saxophone player is called Big Man. Springstern's concerts can pack a stadium with 80,000 people. Known fans include Skids. Tracks isn't so sure. Springstern's place of origin is not known, but New Jersey is a good bet. <laughs> so someone put work into that, whether it's the you know original editorial team who wrote that Transformers comic or just somebody on 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 a wikia with too much free time <laughs> yeah exactly i think i the transformers wiki really does have a lot of effort put into it i i, I looked up something there once and i got really drawn into it it drew the the wiki when i was just looking for something i had as a kid drew me back into transformers and it ultimately led me to reading the idw comics and like meeting like Nick Roach and James Roberts, who work on those comics, you know. In the end, I became friends with them, all because I read something on the wiki and it was funny. I was like, oh, this is what the contemporary fandom for this is like. They understand the sort of ludicrous history and the convolution of the kind of attempting to maintain a toy franchise for 40 years, you know. Yeah, it's brilliant. I love the idea that if they really wanted to, there could have been a legal battle over who has the rights to Brick Springstern. Uh, you know, not unlike the the wrangling that kept Death's Head in Marvel UK or the reason you can't find that one Spider-Man crossover issue when they collect old Transformers yes. comics and trade. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, it's it's a very it's a very odd area, the kind of the way that Transformers is in the Marvel universe. Then they kind of take it out. They're like, no, actually maybe it isn't in the Marvel universe. And yeah, oh yes, of course, yeah, Death's Head and things like that, where they had to do that. They did like they drew one page and mm -hmm. snuck it into a Marvel comic the month before he appeared, in order that he wasn't owned by Hasbro, which I think is a lovely bit of eighties sh chicanery that you couldn't get away with now. Now I'm just I'm just thinking of when they put out the the Marvel Hasbro put out the Marvel Legends figures, and they're just like, God damn it, it could have been ours. I know, yeah. Well, just imagine, just imagine if we'd had all those sort of generations of like Death's Head figures, you know, like Titans Return, Death's Head, and all that. I mean, I'm not a big like toy collector, but I bought all the Death's Heads. Of course, I would. Death's Head in in 1986 is Transformers the movie. 
oh don't don't this could still happen you know like we're, we're, in, we're in an era where you know retroactive messing about with things is all too popular they could definitely sneak him in yeah i feel like that would just encourage the uh, the uh, the ai crowd but uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> unicron's going to kill us all yes you know, something like that <laughs> wonder i've never thought about how he talks i've got a very weak imagination does he have do you think he has a british accent i think he might do now yeah that's changed everything that's changed everything i'm gonna have to go away and think about this but uh, there could be that it was a real toss-up between whether i was going to draw an x-men comic or draw a death's head comic but death's head he's got a lot of crenellations and like fiddly bits to draw and i was like am i going to be enjoying this as much on the uh on the 23rd page as I am on the, on the first page. And I thought, maybe not. <laughs> well, I will, I will say if it's any consolation, you know, if, if we had a time machine right now, I'd love to rescue those, those, you know, 15 year old death's head drawings from the fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, I'm very, very ashamed of, of my, uh, of my, but, but you know, when you're a teenager, you're just very self-conscious about stuff and you're like, Oh, don't want anyone to ever see this. Oh, I can't, you know, hide behind my hair again. Certainly. Uh, well, you know, in, t- in talking about Kitten the Wolf, now, first of all, I have to tell you, uh, this has become my new favorite reverse story. Um, just the the sight gags that you get to do with the most obviously not human member of the Reavers. <laughs> I'm just gonna try. I'm gonna try and be subtle about this as possible, but uh, they are they are very good and. Uh, <laughs> They, they are the reason to uh, subscribe to your Patreon and read this comic. <laughs> the, are you talking about the most shameful thing about that comic? I, I, I yeah, I, oh no, that sight gag. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a few, I put some Easter eggs in there. Mm-hmm. I say Easter eggs. I mean, they're shaped like Easter eggs. It doesn't matter. People will find it eventually. Yeah. But yes. Yes, I, w- I won't give away too much, but I do love Bonebreaker. I mean, he's not, again, I didn't want to draw Death's Head for 23 pages. Bonebreaker, the guy's half a tank, and you realise when you only ever really draw things that you find easy, that drawing half a tank over and over and over again, it's not actually that easy. Turns out, the guys who draw these comics, very talented. Me, I look at it, and I second time I'm drawing, I'm like, I'm not getting anything in the right place. I had to make a 3D model of the bottom of Bonebreaker, so that I could just use it over and over again from different angles. Because, yeah, so I sat there in SketchUp, neatly trying to make a half a bone break. This this makes sense, because what is Bone Breaker if not a tank centaur? Centaurs (laughs) famously being half-horse, horses famously being difficult to draw. That's true. There's there's really no difference. Yeah, Bone Breaker, but I like him. With the Reavers, the things that, there were things I couldn't work out. I well, I wasn't sure which ones were Australian and which ones weren't, but I've watched a lot of Australian soap operas, so I thought I can really give an authenticity to the Australianness of all of them if necessary. And I thought about Pretty Boy. We've never really, ex- you know, no one's ever really explored the psychology of him being pretty. So I tried to. He spends a lot of time smoothing his hair back and just trying to look good. And even when he has a fight with Wolverine, he looks a lot better than all the others afterwards as well. You know, he still looks quite slick. So yeah, there's a lot. And Lady Deathstrike again. I'd not, I'd not spent ten minutes thinking about Lady Deathstrike for thirty years, but I, I've spent a lot of time trying to get into the psychology of a petite woman with gigantic knives for fingers. I like to think of the idea of Pretty Boy auditioning for Neighbors at one point. Oh, he, they love him on Neighbors. He fit right in. There's the the other big Australian soap is Home and Away. 
And half the guys in Home and Away, they're massive. My Neighbours was quite metropolitan. It was set in Melbourne, you know, it was quite socially progressive by the end. Home and Away is just about big, beefy guys, many of whom have kind of come from like the outback and come to this nice little surf town. They're enormous. They're guys who just fill the screen. If they turn sideways, you can see the other characters. But if they turn face on, boom, that's it. 16-9, completely consumed. So I was kind of thinking about those those big, beefy Home and Away guys when I was drawing the Reavers. Now, I'm picturing the Reavers going and visiting, you know, their brothers or sisters with kids and having to sit there and watch Bluey and just, you know, <laughs> looking like, really? I I, I mean, that we, we don't explore what the Reavers get out of like, do they like cricket? Do they like, well, I'm sure they like, like, lager beer. If you can still drink, like, you know, lager when you're a robot. You know, cyborg. I like to think they would have left themselves some pleasure. They're freebooting, you know, psychopaths. Surely they can still drink, taste beer. Chris Claremont doesn't get into this. And I think he, I might have to find a way to reach out to him. I think, can the Reavers drink beer? Because surely they wouldn't have given that up to become cyborgs. I, I promise you, he has thoughts and opinions on this. <laughs> <laughs> And somebody, the next time they're at a convention and he's on a, doing a panel, should ask him about it. I just think, like, the, the when you have to think about these characters for a long time, you have to, I can't help but think about the actual logic of their existence. And I know it's a real weakness when you're kind of working in, like, at the superhero realm. You shouldn't be thinking about the logic of whether something will work, but I can't not do it. I try to think, can I justify absolutely everything that's happening here as realistic? <laughs> so thinking about kitty in this in this comic what does it say about uh a mutant best known in the 80s for having terrible fashion sense making her own costumes changing her code name 20 times that the look that has best stood the test of time for her from that era is the jacket she wore to yell professor xavier is a jerk well it's just you just that's the nature of like going sort of thrifting isn't it sometimes the 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 garment that hasn't really been worn is in still in really good condition and then you wear it for two years and everyone says wow where did you get that jacket you know the jacket that was too hideous for 1984 but was just right for you know 2014 or whatever and i think that's the thing with kitty you know she's her time simply had not come she was a prophet without a country and and now when you look at kitty's outfits all right there are some bad ones i did read the whole kitty pride and wolverine limited series drawn by al milgram and there are some serious fashion crimes in that oh boy you know like kitty gets a very bad mullet when uh, ogan you know kind of you know shears her hair off it's not a good look but at the same time the the, the professor x is a jerk uh jacket is timeless and i believe possibly you know could you know you may see marvel monetizing this pearl mutter out jackets in that's what i heard <laughs> love it love it so how time consuming was crafting an entire 1980s bullpen bulletins page versus the rest of the comic I've, I've got form on this. It's about the sixth one I've done. I, I would do them for my own comics and I'd make up all the comics on there usually. So every comic would be made up and it'd be full of little, little in jokes designed for about three or four of my friends about, you know, there would be little musical jokes and things like that. So to do a Marvel one, I just found a checklist from 1985, just wrote all the titles in 
the page was already laid out pretty much for me doing them before. And then it was just a matter of thinking about what might have been happening in like issue 70 of Ron or, you know, like whatever was out that month. I put one or two fake titles in to to throw people. But for the most part, they were the real comics that came out that month. All the star comics. Mm. I don't know if listeners may not recall star comics, but it was Marvel's kind of Harvey style kids line. A lot of the comics just looked like Richie Rich. There are about three titles where all the central characters looked like Richie Rich. Very sort of sub subpar, unfunny, kind of lame comics, really. They 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 were they they weren't great. They really weren't great star comics. If if there are any star comics creators listening, by the way, I realize you were probably working under the gun for about you know 75, 75 cents a page. So I do apologize. But I hated them as a kid. And if, and they would sometimes be reprinted in the Marvel UK comics as backup strips. And you'd be like, well, there's eight pages I've paid for that I'm never going to look at. Planet Terry, thanks very much. Bit unfair. So you, as a kid, the disappointment was really, really, really high when you got a Star Comics backup instead of Machine Man or, you know, Strike Force Morituri or something like that. You'd be like, no, nah, this isn't the content I want. But no, bullpen bulletins, it's a joy. I love making a bullpen bulletins page. If they still have them in Marvel Comics and they need somebody to come in and do it, I, I'd do it. I'll do the profile. We can't do Stan's Soapbox anymore, but I'm sure we can find somebody to talk about going to Hollywood and all the movies that aren't going to get made. <laughs> yeah, classic Stan. <laughs> I love him. I love him. I love, because I, I love Stan Soapbox because he's so positive. And there are loads of like sort of quite socially progressive ones from when, you know, he's he started to get a bit of the L.A. lifestyle and he's become, you know, he comes a bit more freewheeling, you know, mm-hmm. and he's, he has some very nice sentiments in some of those Stan Soapboxes. I think they're a really positive thing. But the, the ones where he's been to Hollywood and he's had his head turned and he comes back and he's like, Jeremy Irons is going to be playing Doctor Doom in a movie that's coming out, you know, September 1989. So get your tickets, kids. You're like, it's Stan, no, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. <laughs> Why was no one making him sign NDAs? <laughs> I think he's he's surely the man who came up with all his characters. He is a grade A fantasist. I mean, he you know he simply applied the same imagination that brought you the Fantastic Four to you know what he was doing in Hollywood. <laughs> this Doctor Strange TV movie is going to be the next big thing. <laughs> Thing is, I remember what I'm sorry, I'm losing it. I'm thinking about like the kind of like the new Hulk kind of TV movies that would have like Thor in or whatever. Yes. And it would be like the worst Thor you can imagine, as depicted by someone who's never seen Thor. And Thor will be like Daredevil too. Daredevil. Oh no. But Lou Ferrigno was there. That guy was holding the line. Again, I love Lou Ferrigno. To see him at San Diego Comic Con when I first started going was magical genuinely magical and lou he put in the hard yards in the end of the 80s doing those marvel tv movies because my god the guys yeah those shoulders were broad and they had to be so the last time that we had you on the show was uh back in 2019 right when when giant days was ending you know in, in that time how do you feel like your relationship with the industry has has changed or or evolved I think it's it's been tricky because my my hit was like a kind of indie comic hit, fairly long running, you know, all told 60 issues if you kind of count the specials and things like that. The kind mm-hmm. of book that kind of doesn't get 
to start and run for that length anymore. So I feel very lucky in the industry because I was one of the last people who got to play effectively in the kind of 80s, 90s sandbox of indie titles that run and run. Mm-hmm. And uh, so and it, and I like a long runner and I feel like I kind of can't do a new one now that goes into comic shops. It's, I can't access the direct market in the way I did then, which makes me quite sad. I feel lucky that Dark Horse is still asking me to do a little four and five issue series, you know, because again, it's a it's it's a tough road to hoe. But I love serial entertainment, so I, I kind of keep trying. But part of me just wants to do another 60 issue run of something. And because over 60 issues, you really get to see what happens. You know, you you evolve as a creator, the characters evolve, everything changes. You you enter a level of Desperation may be the wrong word, but creative necessity, perhaps, where you have to go in directions that you wouldn't go and you find gold, you know, you dig and dig and dig. It's like at the start of your career, you kind of you, you put your spoon on top of the earth and you dig up a Bitcoin, but you've got to have like 5,000 computers doing it to, to, to pop out a Bitcoin now, you know, and it's a bit like that with 60 issues of a series. By the time you could trying to do a good issue 45, you're like, whoa, well, where am I going to go now? How am I going to make this good? And it forces it forces you to really dig and dig and dig and, and dig things up. So I don't think I'm going to get to do that in the industry again, which I think is a shame, which is kind of the reason that I do the Patreon, because mm-hmm. there I can kind of support in a modest way m- longer runs of stories. You know, I've done 12 issues of Solver, the kind of wicked things follow up. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I could have done 12 issues of a kind of indie series like that that's quite esoteric and to have it pay for itself at a publisher at the moment i just don't think i could do it doing kind of 22 page issues working you know sort of producing one every month and a half something like that so yeah so it's, it's a weird time for the industry it's a weird time for someone like me because i've been asked to write marvel books but i kind of don't want to do it not that i not again not to disrespect marvel so many of my friends do amazing work there but Am I the best person to write a kind of team book at Marvel? I I don't know that I would. That's what I want to do. I do Punisher. If they ask me to write Punisher, I go like, yeah, I'll have a go at Punisher because that's kind of completely new territory. Again, that's the first teaspoon of of Earth, you know, like and I found gold because no one's you've never seen Punisher the way I do Punisher. Because mm-hmm. I don't know how I do Punisher. But do you know what I mean? That that, that would be interesting. But you know, if I don't know how to approach a 20 page comic with 20 years of history behind it and fan expectations off the charts. I just don't know how to approach that. You know, I like doing my own stories. I, I understand my audience. And so that that's that's a more pleasant way for me to work, really. There's an awful lot of pressure about kind of going into the, the comics mainstream. Speaking of one of the other books that you've done for Dark Horse in that time since you were last on the show, uh, I mean, your books always tend to have a bit of a heightened reality, but Steeple is much more deeply in the supernatural. Mm. Um, what are, are, there, are there different challenges, especially when it comes to that interacting with the more grounded world that it does exist in since there are crossovers with your other books? It, steeple is different to write. I have to get into a different headspace. I have to think differently. There's a period of adjustment where if I start going into steeple world, I'll, I'll perhaps start and it'll, it'll 
if I've not done it for a while, because there was a gap between the kind of the Dark Horse series, the ones I did during the pandemic, and then the stories that came out as volume three. I have to kind of snap out of whatever I'm doing and think about a very different set of rules. And sometimes Steeple lends itself to lots of different storytelling. Again, it was flexible when I first came up with it. It wasn't always going to be so... Because it has some quite sort of doomy aspects to it, some quite dark aspects, even though it's a, a you know, it's a humorous book like all my books. But it has some darker aspects to it that some of them are kind of just kind of nudged off to the side a little bit. You know, it's like if you actually scrutinize some of the relationships between the characters, you're like, what is going on here? This actually isn't very nice. But they kind of like people do in real life. People kind of don't address these things. They kind of just get on with their lives. I was like, instead of going at it in a kind of issue-based way it's like no what do people actually do they don't talk about their problems for the most part when you ask somebody how they're doing they don't tell you all the things that are wrong they say oh i'm fine and that's kind of how steeple works so the supernatural stuff it's like oh i'm fine <laughs> you know like you just get on with it and that was my idea really, that that's how it works that's how it works differently they just get on with it if they've got it like the reverend goes out and patrols by night he clearly fights beasts almost every night he's always got cuts and bruises and things he gets up halfway through the day and it's like sometimes he'll just be like burning a huge like fish beast in the yard and Maggie will just be like helping him get on with it. It's like, no, this is just what I have to do. Unfortunately, this is the row I have to hoe. That's kind of the, that's kind of the steeple way, you know, the, the supernatural. Because if you had to do that all the time, it would be mundane, even though. So I can draw loads of wild stuff, but the attitudes of people, people are people, you know, they're not. There's nothing portentous about how they deal with it. It's like, if you live in this town, you just kind of have to deal with a lot of this stuff. And you've just got to put up with it and get on with it. That's kind of the, that's kind of the way of things. And the town is pronounced... Tredragon. Tredragon. Okay, I was close. I was close. <laughs> yeah, Cornish names are, are usually pretty, you know, they're pretty flat, flatly pronounced. You know, they're, they're not, there's not usually any kind of... Um, I'm trying to think now. There is a place called Mousehole that's pronounced Mousel. But I've spent a lot of time in, in that part of the country because Cornwall is kind of like its own. It, it wishes it was a country. There are Cornish separatists, although they're, they're not well organised. It does have its own flag. I think it was a country, like a Celtic. It's like a Breton country at one point. It has like a kind of black and white, the kind of the black and white saltire flag, the cross. So it's it, it's its own thing. And it's a peninsula. It's only bordered by one other county, which it hates. So, uh, <laughs> so it's, it, you know, there's a, yeah, that's that's the Cornish way. But yeah, it's, yeah, Tredragon. That's right. I'm sure that's right. I pray that's right. And <laughs> <laughs> speaking of the evolution of the book, I take it then that this evolved into the, let's say, thirstiest thing you've ever written? Because I mean... Oh, it Lottie yes. wrote comments that the, the town just seems horny. And so I, I take it that was not intended. It just sort of came with the book. Yeah, it evolved out that like everybody's got better looking. I look I dug out the um I dug out the original roughs that I did of the characters and like they've all kind of become slightly more apple cheeked and um you know pink over over time and yeah it does have that slight it is the thirstiest book but i like that i I like the fact that it's just sort of unbridled people just say what say it there cornwall's a different place i mean i'm not saying if you go to cornwall it's just the, the whole county is a thirst trap 
<laughs> but I'm not saying it's not. And uh, finally on that, it you'll be doing some more follow-up on your Patreon. Yes? Yes. Yes. There is a new steeple story underway. I, I drew the first page today. And um, so, you know, accidents notwithstanding. Yes, in I think at the, at the start, end of May, the new sort of 22 page issue will appear on Patreon. And then as always, like they trickle out once they appear on Patreon, we get a nice high res PDF. Then they trickle out kind of three pages a week on the website until, you know, the seven weeks of elapsed, And then the next issue pops up on the Patreon. I found that be a good way to release them. Having sort of a long history in web comics, I, I still like to have them out there uh, for free, but you know, for the luxury experience. The Patreon subscribers get everything first and nicer. John, this has been a fantastic hour. Uh, final question as we release you back into the world. Uh, how can people follow you online and support everything that you're doing? You can find all my comics linked at scarygoround.com. Uh, that will take you. You can visit the Bad Machinery archives. At Go Comics are all linked up there. All my web, new web comics, the Patreon. My Patreon is patreon.com forward slash scary go round i'm still on twitter you know like like all of us just just you know you look occasionally but you know if you ask me a question i'll answer it um which is on twitter i'm at bad machinery on instagram i'm at bad machinery but the socials though those days are over i think i'm not as social as i used to be so yeah just go to the website go go there there's loads of reading there's thousands of pages that i've drawn that you can read for free most of them i think are pretty decent Excellent. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a Pete Wisdom Hot Claws sticker designed by Kevin Newburn. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $4 donation get you access to Our Son Pete and the sticker. A $25 donation lets you plug your crowdfunded or creator-owned comic in a 60-second spot. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Liz Large, and Will Nevin from ComicsXF, Carla Pacheco, Mike Sagawa, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF, assuming Twitter still works. And until next week, remember, somewhere out there, there's a Batman comic where all the characters simply cannot stop saying the word boner. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.